Warning. This podcast includes unapologetic logic and reason and may not be suitable for all audiences. In a world of nonsense, he's the voice of uncommon common sense. He sees the abnormal that many find normal. Author and award-winning speaker, here's Chris. Well, thank you for that very nice, very warm welcome there. Everything seemed to work out, but as is usual, when we do these live podcasts, there's always a little hiccup somewhere. I guess I just got to do more of it. Uh, what was the problem? Well, the volume was turned up way loud on the other computer, the new computer here in the studio. I don't know if you heard that little beeping come. I don't know what's going on. It just starts beeping. But he's sitting here trying to work, and this thing's just be The monitor's not on. It's like a weird glitch of the new computer. I don't know. Not good when you're trying to do a live podcast. Well, welcome aboard. It's Saturday, 1,400 hours. What a day. Ran into a guy from uh, 310, Camp Lejeune today, 2002 to 2006. Maybe I'll tell that story later in the week, maybe Friday. What a fascinating discussion. Today, what I wanted to talk about, and we're going to have our buddy Matt Melvin here is on hold waiting to come on to tell his story behind the book that he wrote, Bullied Behind Bars. And it's really a great story. Uh, The link to get the book is in the show notes below. Uh, I can tell you that trying to get out there with a book is difficult. And um, I like to to help out the, what would you say, indie author? I don't even know what that means. Self-published kind of guy. It's not like he's getting a big book deal. You got to hustle to get the book out there. So, you know, get the book, get a couple. The holidays are coming up. Buy a couple, give a couple away. It's a good good practice to give books away. And, uh, and you can help Matt out a little bit there. Uh, anyway, leading up to this, I want to kind of lay the groundwork before we uh, talk to Matt here. And this issue of crime and, and criminal justice is, is a big issue right now. I told you, uh, I think on Friday, Thursday night, I was at a campaign uh, event for Nancy Price. And this was the, the issue, this in the schools, this is the thing that people, things that people are fired up about, believe it or not, the crime going, people don't feel safe when their children don't feel safe, when uh, they don't feel that their parents are safe, and people don't, don't like that, believe it or not. And this kind of uh, liberal approach to crime and letting the criminals have their way and, and not having bail and... Um, releasing criminals that have been arrested. It's not working out real well. But the fact of the matter is there is another side of the story. And policing and, and criminal justice is wildly expensive. I mean, it's, it's crippling uh, states and communities, the, the cost of, of dealing with what's, what's expected out of these systems uh, today. But um, with all the money that's pumped into it, it's really not – uh, very effective, not effective at deterring crime. Uh, I've told you uh, firsthand stories that I know that people that wanted to go to jail because they saw it as their best option to have a place to, to sleep and to get a meal. I kid you not. That's not, that's not a good situation on many fronts. Uh, so the criminal justice system and the way we're approaching this is not really doing anything 
to deter crime largely, and the rehabilitation efforts, you know, are, are not effective at all either. Why is that? Well, I don't know that there's one reason, you know, that you would say that. I think there's probably quite a few reasons, but the fact of the matter is that there's a lot of money that flows into the system. A lot of lawyers that make money and, uh, you know, companies that make money off of uh, supplying and and providing for this whole uh, system. And so there's a big interest in not changing anything, just to maintain the status quo and uh, you know, people can be very convincing in their arguments, especially when it comes to your personal safety, convince you to just uh, leave it alone. Well, Matt found himself at a young age on the wrong end of the criminal justice system in a story that I find really bizarre. Let's see if we can get him on here. And we're going to let Matt tell his side of the story. And um, and you can decide for yourself what you think of it. You there, Matt? I'm not hearing you for some reason, which isn't good. And I'm wondering if you're hearing me. Um, Matt, one more time. Are you there? I should be hearing you, and I'm not. Let's try putting you back on hold, and then we're going to bring you back here. Are you there, Matt? Matt? Is not coming through. Let me try something else. There's another caller here. Matt? Hi, I'm here. All right. I see. You know what? Every time I do this, there's like some crazy little glitch. I don't know why this is coming up this way on the switchboard here. I'm glad I clicked over here. I thought we had somebody else calling. I recognized the number. Uh, good to hear your voice, Matt. Matt, how'd you end up in jail? I... Back in 2004, I was working at a car dealership uh, in, in South Burlington, Vermont, called Freedom Nissan. Uh, I was not – I had sold several cars, was not paid the commissions that I was due, uh, and I ended up taking matters into my own hands and taking a car home without authorization. Um, and I ended up trying to sell that car to a dealership in North Carolina and got caught. So, and how old were you? What did you say, 23? Yes. So 23 years old, and you had some issues, right? Some uh, uh, emotional control issues going on. And you're working. Say that again, Matt. I'm very impulsive, yes. Yeah, you're autistic, right? And I suffer on the um, autism spectrum. And I also yeah. have ADHD. So you're a high-strung young guy. You're 23. This guy's not paying you. And so you're like, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm going to write this wrong, my doggone self. You take the car, which, you know, legally is uh, a, um, a felony uh, vehicle theft charge which is what you were charged with right what was the value of this car matt how much money did you sell were you, or you never even made the sale is that correct i never made the sale so in the state of vermont there's we don't have grand theft auto as a as a crime so it was charged as grand theft um gotcha. and then uh, also i was charged with um operating a motor vehicles w- without the owner's consent 
Gotcha. Okay. Which was all true, right? And But what was the value of the car? What were you going to sell it for? Uh, well, I mean, it was a it was a Nissan Armada back in 2004, so I, I, I didn't do my research to tell you how much it was back then, but it's obviously not what it is today. Yeah, so there was some value to it. It wasn't it wasn't five thousand dollars. It was no, a valuable was vehicle. Yeah. Um, all right. So, but either way. Uh, the point I was trying to make is to have this escalate. You know, you'd never had any other issues before. You never had any brushes with the law, no record. And right. boom, they hit you. What did you get sentenced? Did you tell me two years? Uh, I did a year and a half in um, multiple facilities within the state of Vermont. It was very similar, actually, to the when I got charged the second time. They, they, I, I was moved to many different facilities um, because I just because I was a gay man and was um, preyed upon by both the staff and the inmates. Um, it was really no difference between the first time and the second time that I was in prison. Um, yeah, the stories that you tell are fascinating. But, but before you get into that, Matt, let me back up a second. Let me back up a second. Um, was there ever any effort to rehabilitate you that was provi- not provided by the prison system? Am I right? No, there was no effort to do a rehabilitation. Now, uh, the state has what's called mental health court. Um, my family and I tried to get into that. Um, Je- judge Jeffrey Crawford um, was the judge that was in, uh, in charge of that court and also a man named Bob Wolford. Bob Wolford worked at Howard Mental Health, and both of those gentlemen decided who would come into the court and who didn't. Now, I actually saw Bob Wolford for probably a year um, when I was in high school, and Bob and I knew each other fairly well. Um, And I was very shocked that both Judge Crawford and Bob Wolford would not allow me into the mental health court. Now, the mental health court would have prevented me from going to prison. I would have to check in on a weekly basis with the court. I would have to go in person to the courthouse in downtown Burlington and check in. And as long as I wasn't committing any more crimes, I would, I would be able to go home to my family every night. However, these two gentlemen decided that I, would not, I did not qualify to be um, part of that court. Yeah, so the whole issue of the autism and, and any special needs, if you will, was just completely ignored, right? Correct. I mean, I had been seeing mental health providers since I was a very, very young child. So I obviously um, I don't see how I didn't meet the standards that they were looking for. Well, this goes back to, you know, the points I made to to open up the show here. The system is wildly expensive. And, you know, let's just call it for sake of an argument, argument, uh, sake of illustration, a a $20,000 vehicle, right? That's what started this whole thing in motion, right? A a $20,000 crime that never occurred. It never actually occurred. You were trying to do it. You got caught, but it never actually occurred. The property was returned. 
uh, no harm, no foul, so to speak. You know, to me, you know, I think I, I discussed this with you the last time we spoke that you, know, you would think that somebody along that line, the, 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 the business owner, the prosecutor, the judge, somebody would say, hold on a minute here. Uh, young man, you know, we're going to put you on probation. And as long as nothing happens over the next 24 months, you're going to be off and on, but don't pull this crap again. I, I'm shocked. So, but let's just stick with the financial side of it a second. Over a $20,000 crime that didn't occur, uh, round numbers, two years in jail. I, I think the cost that you hear is something like you know, 60000 a year. The state is going to spend $120,000 a year. And would you say that you're, you're, if you're, you weren't given any opportunity to be looked at from a mental health perspective? Would you say that it hurt you from a mental health perspective, your experience in there? Absolutely. I suffer from yeah. PTSD. While I was Made in prison, worse. I fell off a bunk because um, I was put on a top bunk and actually fell over and hit my head on the cement. I got to tell you, you know, there's people that would hear you say that and, you know, might not see it your way. But I want to tell you, I can absolutely see how you would have PTSD from what went on there and, and what happened to you. Um, I, I can see you. I can understand why, even though I don't agree with it. You know, people were responding the way they were. And you and I talked about some of that. I don't need to go into today. Um, but I want to just stick with this basic because the issue is so big politically right now. You know, it, you can get all the details of all the stories you lay out perfectly in the book. So um, we'll, let, we'll leave a little, uh, a little for people to discover on their own there. Go get the book and you can get all these saucy stories. Um, but you know, just staying with the political side a second, over a, a $20 crime, which is, like I said, didn't occur, you're now, you know, over $100,000 just in, in detention fees. They don't offer you any help or options and, in fact, leave you uh, more disabled, if you will, less capable. Here's the part of it, whatever people want to think of that, and you've admitted this yourself, you did the crime, there's no question Right, you admit that and understand why that's wrong and everything. Um, I, I argue the minutia of it. I, to me, the punishment didn't fit the crime, in my opinion. Um, but the the crazier story is what landed you back in jail. And start with when you get out on probation. Just a little bit of what makes being on probation so difficult. Start the story there. So I was let out and put on supervision. Uh, the, the biggest issue with being on supervision is that you have to report um, whenever the, the probation officer wants to see you. So if the probation officer wants to see you tomorrow at 10 o'clock, it doesn't matter what you have going on. You better be at their office at 10 o'clock. Otherwise, they'll violate you, and you'll go back to jail automatically, and you won't have any bail. So it's very inconvenient. Some people wouldn't scoff at that either. They would say, well, commit a crime. But keep going. There's a bigger problem, right? You There's can't a bigger really... problem. That I now have a criminal record and can't get a job, can't find an apartment to live in. Yeah, you're really stuck, right? Because everywhere you go, you got to tell them that you're a convicted felon now. Correct. And okay. it's um, become a, a catastrophic issue with 
um, as a result of teachers working in schools and having sex crimes on their background. And I understand, and it makes perfect sense, we don't want those people, you know, watching over our children. However, it's, it's, been, it's become a systemic problem and that everybody wants to do a background check on anybody who comes into their um, establishment. And it creates an, an, a really high bar to be able to even find a job. To this day, I can't even find a full-time job. I'm simply working part-time jobs and trying to make ends meet, um, making, you know, 12 or $13 per hour. And that's today, you know. It is really even, amazing because you're, when you think about uh, – and how old are you now? I am 40 years old today. Um, I'm, I'll be 41 at the end of the month. So you get out of jail, you're on probation – you're having trouble finding work. And tell us about the scheme that got you tangled up again. I was working on a couple of uh, merchandising positions in, in a couple of stores and had coworkers that I was working with. And I had talked to them about, I had told them, and it was a scheme, as, as you pointed out, that I would, if they provided me with their Social Security number, and date of birth and, you know, the IDs to go along with that, I could get them other work with other companies. And there were 10 or 12 people that provided me with that information, and I used their information to pass a background check and then work under their name. So this was kind of more or less like almost like a contract labor type scenario you're talking about, right? Was uh, if if and when needed, you would you would do these small amounts of work, and and then uh, you know it, it, so it wasn't a lot of money that was was being exchanged for each one of these, right? No, I, I mean you know you're talking about twelve dollars an hour. It's you know a job might be fifty dollars at most. So you had in order to get the job, you use these uh, stolen. Um, social security numbers and names and you would apply in those names but it wasn't you weren't even uh, the only consequence there could have been to that would have been taxes and as you indicated there was never enough income on any one of those to to trigger a, a 1099 right that's correct so there was no victim in this crime but despite that they run you up again right the government began investigating me uh, in 2014, um, a person named uh, Bob O'Neill, who worked at a bank that I did banking with, uh, Merchants Bank, had noticed some suspicious um, checks that were being cashed in other people's names. Mr. O'Neill ended up calling the IRS and speaking to a gentleman named John Schroeder, and um, a woman from the Secret Service named Mei Chow. Uh, they then began investigating me, showed up at my house in the summer of 2014. I was not here um, when they showed up. They showed up at my parents' house, and they had a stack of paperwork with them. Uh, they told my mother they needed to speak to me. Uh, my mother called me right away. I was actually in Connecticut that day. 
and told, told me about the situation. Uh, I told them that I would be back a few days later and would speak to them. Uh, they ended up parking their car uh, at the Shelburne Bay Plaza, and uh, at 6 o'clock in the morning when I left to go to the gas station to fill up, they actually followed me to the gas station and tried to interrogate me there. When I told them that I was not interested in speaking to them, um, they began pulling out all the paperwork and began uh, interrogating me there. Now, they followed me. I think I, I, I'm not sure if I mentioned that. They actually followed me to the gas station. Matt, it, the whole thing is fascinating. It really is. Um, you know, there's no doubt from talking to you that the autism affects your behavior and your ability to interact uh, socially or what have you. And, you know, this caused some problems. I just, it's nuts. How long total did you end up spending in jail? About, what, over three years between the uh, two? 18 months. 18 All months. To- the government had charged me with multiple counts of identity theft. Uh, in the federal system, if you're found guilty on any, any count of identity theft, it's a mandatory minimum of uh, two years. So I was at between a rock and a hard place and ended up taking a plea. Um, the government had actually laid out, so I was, when I went to, when I finally was indicted, and this was two years after the government had actually started investigating me, uh, they had, one of, the, my, one of the, the people whose information I had used was actually my brother, Andrew, and um, they tried to get him to testify to a grand jury against me. Um, my brother didn't want any part of that, and uh, John Schroeder threatened my brother that they would put him in jail if he didn't testify against me. So my brother was really at a, uh, between a rock and a hard place and, and, and a very difficult situation. Um, does your brother have a criminal record by any chance? He does not. So this is his only, his only issues. So it wasn't like they, you know... Um had any other motivation to go after him purely to get it yet. Correct. The government has, has spent at least $500,000. They went to five juries before they could even finally get an indictment against me. And in 2016, I was uh, at 6 o'clock in the morning, um, eight, um, three Shelburne police officers and Five officers um, from both Secret Service and IRS showed up at my house. Um, I was arrested and brought down to the Shelburne Police Department where I was interrogated. And um, the Shelburne Police Chief, Aaron Noble, was there, and he laughed hysterically and thought that the entire thing was funny. I had asked them if we could please not go to the Shelburne Police um, Station because of the past issues with Chief Aaron, former Chief Aaron Noble, um, and they did not uh, honor my request. I was actually also represented by counsel at that time, and they did not notify my counsel uh, and ask me to surrender, uh, which I would have done peacefully rather than having my mom collapse and have to have to go to the hospital as a result of it, the, the government. 
action sign. You hear a lot of people say that, man, all the time. And uh, I don't know, maybe somebody listening can clue us in the reasons why law enforcement. You would think for everybody's uh, safety and well-being, it's better to have somebody agree just to come in. You know, and in your case, uh, there was no indication of any violence at all in any part of your stories. And I was able to dig around and, and verify enough of the story to uh, to know that the, the basic bullet points are very true. Matt, wh- wh- why do you think the system's so messed up? It's a profit. It, it's, it's, it, there's a lot of money that the... the that is made in the system. A lot of the people that make the money are judges and high, higher ups. I spent $90,000 just in legal fees, and that's just the second time. The first time, I don't know how much in legal fees I spent um, getting, getting representation. Um, and, and that was my retirement, sir. That was my, the way I was, that was my retirement plan. That what, disappeared you know it's like uh, going through a divorce i've talked about this before there's only one politician i know a guy who is a libertarian running trying to run for governor in new york again uh larry sharp also a marine veteran and he talks about the need to reform family court and how it just destroys people's lives and it really does um in some aspects the same way the criminal justice system does and nobody's sympathetic to, to either of it. You know, when you're in it, all you want to do is get out, right? You'll do anything, right, just to, to end the, the pain and suffering, the emotional trauma. I mean, all, and, you know, I'm, I'm not exaggerating. Divorce court, anybody who's been through a divorce, it's brutal going through that. It's brutal waiting for these hearing dates. You think you're going to go to jail or you don't know if you're going to go to jail and you know, you're anxious to hear from your lawyer, but you know that every time you talk to him, it's just cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. And there really is, you, you, and why? Everybody knows these systems are terrible, and there's really no effort at all to really do anything about it. Why is that? Well, it's because the people involved, like you said, you know, from the, the lawyers that work, you know, around the courthouse to the places that serve them lunch, and, uh, you know, the, the companies that service the sheriff's vehicles, and it's a long list of people that are uh, impacted by that economic machine and mostly incentivized to just shut up and go along with the status quo, including the judges, like you said, right? The judges get in there. Let me tell you, people don't realize this, but, you know, if the judge is not liked by prosecutors, uh, and I'm not saying the prosecutors have to love the judge, but if the prosecutors hate the judge, the judge has got a problem. You know, it's very foolish to think that when a judge is running for election, that the prosecutors and the police aren't going to speak up about their experience with the judges. And who do you think is going to carry more weight, you or the chief of police and the prosecutor? I mean, you, you just, you never really get a voice. Um, I think the way you laid the, the book out, Matt, it really, I actually read the whole thing in, pretty much in one sitting. I'd started, I was very busy um, when you first reached out. I'd started it and then um, got tied up, and then, but pretty much read the book in a day. Um, I, it's, it's a very um, 
engaging. I don't want to say entertaining because uh, even though I, I, I think I probably did laugh a few times, it's not really funny. Um, and, and entertaining isn't the word. Um, but uh, it really is a great story, Matt. What, what are you hoping to accomplish with the book? Why, why would you suggest people get it? Whether you know somebody that's in prison or you know somebody that perhaps speeding on the highway. I mean, you know, my, I, I, before I even took the car, I was on a, on a bad path. I was getting speeding ticket after speeding ticket after speeding ticket. And so, you know, those speeding tickets got, got escalated to, to where, where it was out of control. And so if you know somebody or a family member that's been in, in prison or you know a, a young person that's making wrong decisions, this could be you. And, and my goal is that nobody else has to experience the pain and suffering that me, myself and, more importantly, all of my family and friends have had to endure because they didn't commit the crime, but they were victims by the court system, and and they, they did nothing wrong. Big time, big time. Matt, real quick, we've got about 15 seconds here. Uh, you still doing well? You're out of trouble now, right? You're problem-free? I'm out of trouble. Um, I'm working. I'm traveling to three or four states just to find work. Um, I put over 100,000 miles Stick with it, Matt. My... I got to run, brother. It was great to hear from you. We'll be back Monday. Hope to see you there. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.